Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host, and I am honored once again by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Here at the Business Creators Radio Show, we take you into the field to those places where you have those aha moments and mastermind meetings that move you closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. You may hear various ambient noises in the background from time to time, a bird chirping, a car driving by, laughter from a nearby table at a cigar shop or a tea house. You may occasionally hear a cat purring. If I'm in my sumptuous apartment in Las Vegas, known to some as the hottest city in America. In fact, I am sitting in my parlor today, and I'm joined by my production assistant, Princess Alessandra Francesca, who is off camera, but she is certainly going to be the third person in this conversation, along with you, the listener. We have a guest today who's going to share with us on something I think is very important. It's about growing your wealth with inflation. This is sadly for better or worse, a very relevant topic. And if you remember your history going back trends over 30, 40 years, this is something that's probably going to remain relevant in the months, possibly even at least a few years to come. I don't know if you're listening to this when we release it. I don't know if you're listening to this six months from now or six weeks from now or what news was on right before you tuned in to listen to this. But I have a funny feeling that it's going to have sadly some level of relevancy for you but we're here to for lack of a better phrase make it fun as much as anything like that can be possible i've been having a great time in the green room chatting with this guy i'm going to introduce you to right now his name is mark willis he's a man on a mission to help you think differently about your money your economy and your future he's a certified financial planner a three-time number one best-selling author the owner of Lake Growth Financial Services, which is a financial firm in Chicago, and co-host of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Over the years, he's helped hundreds of his clients take back control of their financial future and build their businesses with proven, tax-efficient financial solutions unknown to most financial gurus. And he has indeed become known as Not Your Average Financial Planner. All right, so I like odd numbers, so. That makes some interesting averages. Mark Willis, come on in. Weather's fine. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me on. I read off a piece of your bio there, just a piece of it. And just that few snippets from the whole thing is so impressive. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be in your presence and we're on my show. So what we like to do here, and I know you gave us some great talking points to uh, cover, and I have a few of my own I'm going to mix in. What? Let's take a step back here first and have you tell us in your own words a bit about your journey that's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Well, thank you. And you have done a great job in just helping business owners build a a sense of community and education and help uh, help all of us uh, with resources we need to survive. It's, It's not a it's not an obvious thing that we'll be able to survive as business owners. In fact, nine out of 10 don't make it uh, in their first year. Uh, but yes, the the background for me, I did not grow up uh, as an entrepreneur in an entrepreneur's family, uh, but I did find uh, some, some wonderful uh, student loan companies that were willing to loan me a ton of money uh, in my young years. You know, it's so funny that as a business owner, kid, let's say you're an 18 year old with a really great business idea and you walk into a bank with that uh, business plan under your arm and you walk in and ask for a loan, they'll laugh you out of the uh, the office as an 18 year old oh, kid, right? Yeah. But you walk into a student loan office um, with a desire to get an arts and crafts degree at a college uh, and they'll loan you six figures. I just got off the phone earlier today with a couple, a young couple 
Uh, they have over $700,000 of student loan debt between the two of them. Uh, and I was not much different in the last recession of 2008. Uh, my wife and I had six figures of student loan debt. And more importantly to the problem there, Adam, we had no plan to pay it off. We didn't have an awareness. We didn't have a, a desire, goal, dream, right. much more. We thought that was just going to be the way it was. We were like tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. And we didn't know that there was a better way. And so that was our journey uh, when we finally did figure out that, hey, wait a minute, they still wanted us to pay this loan off. <laughs> and uh, they were going to drag us through, uh, you know, whatever uh, wage garnishments or whatever it took to get those uh, loans paid off. We finally started figuring out that, hey, maybe we should figure this money thing out. So my wife and I began really focusing on it. We got our pulled ourselves up by our proverbial boots, bootstraps and uh, began to make it uh, our life's mission, not only to get debt-free, but we wanted to be better than debt-free. And even more so to the point, we wanted to help other people find sanity in a world that feels fiscally and financially insane. And so we ended up starting our firm, Lake Growth Financial Services. We work with clients all over the country. I've had the great privilege of working with business owners, real estate investors, even NFL Super Bowl champions. Yep. Uh, but most people I work with just want to take more control over their life. If they felt like that same tennis ball floating down life's gutter, uh, many people who come to speak with me say that they want to move upstream financially. They just want that sense of assurance that they're going to have exactly what they expected from this thing called money so that they can enjoy the more important things in life, family, their spiritual life, you know, relaxing uh, and making a difference. Yeah, I I mean, let's think about that. You mentioned the student loan thing. Uh, today, somebody could, with the wealth of information that's available online, let's say somebody is about uh, 18 or 19 years old and they have a business idea. Well, we celebrate some of these uh, child entrepreneurs, which I think is awesome. But with all the information that's available online today, of uh, training programs, coaching programs, mastermind programs, information courses, the whole thing of how to start a business is readily available there. So I could come to, so that kid, we'll just use the word kid for lack of a better phrase. Let's actually say young adult. I think that's better. Uh, just so we will we frame them properly. Uh, goes to any lender and says, you know, I'd like to borrow $40,000. Uh, I want to start a business. And with this $40,000, I'm going to use 30,000 of it to take this training, join this course, uh, a year's membership in this mastermind is going to get me going. And the other 10,000 is going to be for me to actually start the business while I'm learning how to do it and be profitable at the end of the year. And they'll say, you have no credit. You don't have any, why the hell we, <laughs> and then laugh at them. But if they said, yeah, I want to take intersectional basket weaving uh, so I can get a career at Starbucks someday. You'll say, yeah, yeah, here's a million dollars. Go for it, kid. <laughs> well, you're exactly right. We've turned our uh, financial world upside down. And the um, I think the, the reality is coming home to roost. Uh, you know, anytime the price of something goes that goes up so high and the value of something that comes down so low, at some point, the buying public will shake their head no. Uh, yeah. That's true when it comes to you know um, the price of a smartphone, and that's true when it comes to the price of a degree. If the value goes down, but the price keeps going up, at some point, folks are going to walk away. I don't know when that day will come, but um, college education is not, it's not like you, um, we don't have very many initiation rights in, in our culture, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't get you know, the, the POD, uh, uh, circle with, uh, with people, you know, anointing our head with oil or something like that to become an adult college has sort of been our initiation, uh, uh, experience. And at right. some point you just have to ask, you know, what else is out there? And I think that's ripe for disruption and innovation. Uh, but, uh, that's probably above my pay grade. You know, my goal, my goal is help people find a true sense of purpose with their money and to give them something that they know that they can count on in the midst of a world that's you know quite literally gone insane as we've seen inflation really pick up over the last yeah. last year. 
Speaking of things that have gone insane, do we need to have the conversation about how traditional banks are in the business of not loaning people money, but collecting applications to show that they're being diverse and soliciting applications? Say that again. Okay. Do we have to have the conversation about how traditional banks are in the business of not lo actually loaning out money? But rather developing statistics that show that they took a ver in a, ver a diverse variety of applications. Oh well, sure, yeah. I think there's mm -hmm. certainly uh, there's certainly a theory that goes that you know, I mean, that's true when it comes to hiring any staff position on any major job. You know, like uh, okay, we've met our quota. Uh, now we're going to be uh, going with the people that we actually want to bring into our into our uh, into our fold. And right. That's a, it's scary, but true. Yeah, and I and I've personally experienced this on a couple of occasions where I've had banking loan officers or the tellers at the bank beg me, plead with me to apply for a loan or apply for a credit card. And I'm thinking, yeah, it wouldn't be bad to have this. And then I get treated in one case, literally like a criminal because I actually filled out the application. Uh, the, the story I love to tell is, mm -hmm. is uh, back in the, yeah, back around 2007, 2008, uh, when I was you know, two or three years as a full-time entrepreneur, at that time, I had business bankers showing up at my office unannounced. Now, I've always worked from home, so you know what that means. They were coming to my front door. They had paperwork pre-filled out. All I had to do was give them a number, and they could call it into the office and get me approved for loans. So I... Uh, so about three years in, I thought, okay, I'll take this little $25,000 debt consolidation loan. I ran up some things, getting this thing started. It'd be a nice to, way to have an organized thing to pay this off. So I signed the loan and I got it. Now, what happened between 2008 and 2013? The Great Recession. So by the time I paid off that first consolidation loan on time, every time, and actually somehow managed to pay it off two months early, I thought, okay, this is fun. Let's do another one. So I applied again. And they went out of their way to make it impossible for me. At one point, I caught them somehow using my personal student loan balance twice in two different ways against any eligibility I would have to receive another debt consolidation loan. And at one point, my... Um, my, uh, you know, the banking uh, you know, agent I was working with said, you know, the underwriters are asking, why, why do you have a student loan anyway? And I told him, you realize how he said, yeah, I know, but they want me, they want the answer to this. And I said, let's see, I'm 37 years old. I finished my MBA 14 years ago when I'm 17 years after, which means I'm 17 years after finishing my undergrad degree which means I'm um, statistically every single person who has that trajectory, which means we all have student loans. So what happened yep. is back in the day, and this is what I told him, back in the day when I realized how expensive tuition and room and board and books were, yeah, I defrayed part of it by dealing with being an RA, but a lot of it I had to fund myself. So I took a student loan to use it as seed capital to finance a meth lab so I could manufacture drugs and use the proceeds <laughs> of same to pay the tuition. And then I and then I got a message relayed back to me from the so-called underwriters asking me if I wanted to go to jail that day. And they were actually serious. Wow. They actually they were actually saying, we will turn you into the police if you continue to treat this like a joke. I wonder uh, if if they were serious about it, if they would finally admit that that's how they were treating it. You know, that I think. That, that's that's, uh, that, that's what that's why I gave that answer because yeah. I wanted to bring that out uh, and 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 I think I and I think I proved it. at that at that point I just kind of gave up and I realized it wasn't it I wasn't going to solve it that way but well what you're I, bringing I, up there is uh, the 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 tomfoolery and the foolishness that comes with banks and banks yeah. are honestly at the root of our inflation problem they're at the root of much of our misery. As a society, they're at the root of, well, heck, there's a book by David Graeber called Debt, The First 5,000 Years, Adam. Can, okay. you imagine, can you imagine how much pain, how much suffering, how, much how many marriages have been dissolved, how many lives have ended literally because of that four-letter word, debt, 
Debt yeah. is such a core element to the human experience. It's as old as the institution of mar- marriage, uh, friendships. Um, it's older than the pyramids. Banking has been so core to the human experience. It's like it's like cave paintings and in, in, uh, uh, in to our to our human history. It's just that central to our experience. And it's a tremendously cool book. Uh, the book is, but more importantly, is think of how much. Um, let's just say kissing of the ring you have to do in your life uh, to yeah. the banker. You walk into that banker's office, you you kneel down, you kiss the ring. That's what has to happen, right? To get your line of credit for your business or to get that house you want or to get that degree you think you need or whatever the the issue is. You know, on a, on a, on a, um, on a recent survey and on research I was doing for some writing, I found that according to the U.S. Commerce Bureau, the average American spends about 37% of their income on debt and debt-related payments. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yikes. Can you imagine? So if time is money. Oh, I can't, I can't imagine. I've been there. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it I me too. So yeah. if if uh if if time is money, 37% of your day, you're a slave to a bank. And then you throw the government on top of that, and that's half your day gone just working for somebody else, even if you think you're a business owner. You're actually working for somebody else. Now, that has a lot to do with where we find ourselves today with regard to inflation. Uh, the last, the, the money supply in this country in 1990 was $2 trillion. $2 trillion. That was the M2 money supply in 1990. There were 250 Americans and the money supply, like the stuff sloshing around in our bank accounts and our wallets was $2 trillion. Today, it's $22 trillion. That's a 1,000% increase. But guess what? We've only had a 25% increase of our population. As of 2022, there's only been 25% more Americans today than there were 30 years ago. So the question is, do you feel 10 times wealthier than you did, than your parents might have at your age in 1990? My guess Uh, is not. Right, yeah. (laughs) I don't think so. So, you know, that's a that's a big problem. That's where inflation has really taken us by the gizzard. Uh, since since uh, 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created, we've had over 2,600%, 2,600% inflation. Yeah. So something that cost you $100 in 1913 would cost you $2,600 today. That- that's... Well, I'm just—I mean, I'm just thinking of um, how much things have changed since I became, you know, truly an active participant in the economy when I was 16 years old myself in about 1993. And that's when I went and got a job and started buying my own stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I and I tell you, the uh, when I when I became old enough to legally drive, I was I was like I needed to be able to drive, to get my license and to have a vehicle immediately. And it wasn't because I wanted to go party and go cruising around. It's because I wanted to go start getting some squirreling. We uh, lived in this backwoods rural area where going to the convenience store was a 45 minute round trip. Mm-hmm. There was, there, you couldn't even have a grass cutting business there because there were so, there were so few homes and so few opportunities. I need to, I need to get out and I need to start bringing money in. So, I uh, you know became aware of some certain financial realities very quickly. One of which was is that uh, it was only for that first few months after I got my driver's license that I ever paid less than a dollar per gallon for gas. And there was only one gas mm-hmm. station that I could find that rate at, and it was on one side of a four-lane highway. So I would coordinate me refilling the tank when I was going to and from my first job to have my fill up speed when I was passing that gas station on that side. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even yep. that only lasted a few months. So where are we now with gas? $5, $6, depending, you know, who knows where you're going to be by the time our listeners hear this. And I'm not uh, sure whether it's better for me to just, you know, take my cup of coffee and pour it in my gas tank or try to e- drink my gasoline. It just depends. Exactly. Exactly. Price is going up exactly. That fast. Yep. Now, let, now, let me get to the point. Uh, and then I have a really great question for you. My point is, is has the minimum wage gone up by six? Probably not. No, no, Definitely no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Has, uh, has, the, uh, has the average income for an individual, or a married couple or a family, has that gone up by six? No. 
No, no, no. But prices have gone up by six. Hey, I, you know, I worked in fast food and I remembered, I remember when there actually was a dollar menu. Yeah. <laughs> I, right. I, I, I remember, I remember when you used to go to the dollar store and stuff actually just cost a dollar. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, it's uh, it's so true and uh, sad, but true. Uh, but there's a, there's a, a nice chart, which I know we can't see on this, uh, on this current podcast, but there's a, there's a chart showing that the price of cost of living was essentially covered by one person up until about 1990. Yeah. You could just about hang on to a one income household up through the you know late eighties, early nineties, but somewhere around that point, it really became an untenable to be a one income household for the average Joe, the average family. Yeah, so, that's right about when my mom started yep, working again. That's that. There you go. We'll see that. Yeah. You know, a, 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 that's an anecdote for for the uh, for the statistics. But somewhere around 2002, 2003, it actually and during that recession, it actually um, became untenable for two income household uh, to even keep up, which is why our savings rate, which spiked during the pandemic, has now fallen to its lowest levels on record. We are currently, as of recording, this is uh, early or early November. The savings rate for the average American is a whopping three point one percent of our income. Yep. Which, uh, you know, thinks think about that. That's an, that's for our emergencies, our flat tires, but that's also for our kids' college. That's for the roof repair. That's for our retirement. You think three point one percent is going to cover all that, especially? No. With, with the way the market is this year? No, of no. course not. Yeah. So, you know, there's a there's a looming storm and, and I don't mean to beat this drum too hard, but, you know, folks are thinking that they're just going to wait it out. Uh, we were talking before we hit record that, you know, um, inflation doesn't just disappear because we want it to. Uh, it's, a, it's a very devilish thing. In the late 80s, or excuse me, the late 70s, early 80s, Inflation was persistently and stubbornly high for a long period of time. In fact, we were we were talking about how mortgage rates, right now, the mortgage rates, as we record this, just topped off at seven plus percent for a 30-year fixed mortgage, which is sounds like untenable, right? It sounds like a disaster. It sounds like, how could we possibly, there's no way it's going to stay there. Well, um, there's a period in our not so recent, uh, not so distant past in this country where mortgages were above 10% for over 12 straight years. Now, can you imagine what would have to happen to the price of milk or gas or coffee if we have that kind of inflation with the amount of debt we now carry as a country, which is over $31 trillion? Yeah. If we raise our interest rates and keep them up there, I don't know how we would make it. So what can you do? Is there anywhere to hide? Is, and more importantly, is there anywhere we can thrive? You know, I'm not as interested as uh, in in just you know hiding and running and and running in fear, but as a business owner, uh, I think what I love work in working with other business owners, Adam, is you get a chance to to find creative solutions. There's a there's an artist who says constraints drive innovation, and I think we're under some significant constraints right now. But boy, you can find some really creative, innovative solutions to your problem uh, when you've sit down and have some thoughtful reflection and have a creative, not so average way to approach money. And as a certified financial planner, I think it's time we start saying that the average way of trying to do this money thing is not working. You know, the experiment to the 401k has failed. It's only 41 years old. Did you know that, Adam? This was a shocker to me. No, I said, yeah, I mean, it's it's so ubiquitous, but I'm actually... Uh, just old enough to remember that when I first heard of 401ks, they were still considered a new innovation. So yeah, the 41 yeah. year number sounds ballpark what I believed it to be all along. 1981, the yep. um, first 401k was brought to bear to market. And, you know, so this means under its own rules, because of the uh, 59 and a half rule and other taxable, you know, implications of a 401k, the 401k is so young, it if it was a person, would not even be allowed to retire yet. Yeah. And yet here we are thinking that God brought it down from Mount Sinai or whatever on the eighth day of creation. Uh, it's simply not true. We're living through a grand experiment that says we all have to be a nation of speculators and investors. There must be a better way to, especially as business owners, uh, to prepare for a financial future that uh, could be filled with a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, so 
there are so many different places we can jump in here. Uh, I know you have a few points you want us to cover that's very, very important. And uh, we may get through the first five, and I may not do these in exact order. But let's go back to this whole thing about banks. So one of the questions you requested we ask you is, how can an entrepreneur fire their banker and become their own source of financing? And uh, this is the one where you start to see people leaning in. Yeah, they, and we've talked about how banks really rule the the game. I mean, yeah, you know, if you, I've got a couple of, you've got a cat, I've got a couple of fish, I've you got two cats. Oh, you've got two cats. All right, Princess Alessandra Francesca and Princess Stella Juliana. They are part of our post production team. I love that. That's great. Well, you're living among royalty there. So yes, so you have ca- so so I have cats and you have fish. So let's not mix those two together. Otherwise, oh, no, no. Uh, your cats will be happy and my fish won't be. But anyway, the 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 rule holds true. The environment in which you let your fish live or you let your cats live will dramatically impact their outcome. And you know, my fish, I have to keep them in the right bowl temperature, cold, controlled water. Oh you know, yeah, don't want too much green goo floating in there. You got to clean the tank all the time. Feed them every day. The environment is so crucial to their survival. It and is. I would say the financial environment in which you live is controlled by the bank. We live in their aquarium. They get to decide our interest rates, our monthly payments. Even if we just pay cash for everything, guys, even if you're just a cash payer for everything you do in your business, you're still in their world. You're still participating in their system. Here's what I mean. Let's say that, Adam, you've saved up some coin from your business and you bring in 10 grand and make a bank deposit at the local bank. Yeah. There. All right. So you've deposited 10,000 bucks. What do they do with that money? What do you think they do with that money? They just they, put it in a shoebox or what do they do? They uh, they use it to make money, which means they'll probably, there's probably at least a few random people out there who actually get loans. So the money will be you know, basically put on the market so they can earn interest on it. I mean, I mean, usually because i mean to put it simply my experience is that people who don't need loans are the ones who get them but somebody out there doesn't need loans and wants to get them so they're they're getting the money somehow that's true well you're you're exactly right um mark twain says a banker is a, a fellow who will lend you his umbrella when the sun shines but wants it back as soon as it starts to rain exactly uh, exactly yeah. <laughs> that's i've but heard that exactly- analogy before and it's perfect yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so they don't just let this money sour in their vaults. They loan it out. So you you walk in and deposit the money. I might be right behind you in line and requesting a loan. And they give you they give me your money. So yeah. maybe they paid you, what do you want to do? Let's say they paid you a whopping 1% interest to let your money sit in their on their books, but it's not actually on their books. They loan it out to the guy behind you in line for 10% or 20% or whatever the interest rates are these days on credit cards and, and personal lines of credit. Yeah. So you're getting, you're getting 1% and I'm being charged 10%. That's a thousand percent markup. That's a thousand percent rate of return. And by the way, it's not actually even that bad. It's actually better than that for the banks because how much of their own money did they have in that scheme? Did they put any of their own money in except for opening up the bank and not turning really, the lights not- on? Yeah, I mean, other than overhead, no, they're they're right. playing with they're playing. Yeah, they're down with OPP, other people's other people's. Uh, yep. uh, I can't. What is what is the P o- word OPM? That means money? Yeah, OPM. Other people's OP, money. OP, yeah. OPM. Just keep I mean, it easy there. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, it, it, yeah. In podcast reach, which is my formula for working with entrepreneurs to launch your podcast, we have OPP, which refers to other people's platforms. Oh, very, I, I like yeah. that. Yeah, other people's platforms. I'm gonna, yeah, but yeah, I'm, OPM was what I was looking for. Uh, you, you have to understand, it's only one thirty here. It's still kind of early. <laughs> hey, well, that's all right, man. Um, over here, it's uh, it's getting a little here in Chicago. We're getting um, into the into the twilight hours. So yeah, um, don't make me do math. I guess is the answer to that. But no yeah. math. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea here is. We've got we've got uh, a, a way to conquer inflation, and it's just simply open up a bank. That's there you go. That's the end. Okay. <laughs> because banks are that profitable, uh, you can beat any amount of inflation, even Weimar Germany style inflation. If you can do that kind of a flip between charging um, being being charged one percent and being paid ten percent on money that you didn't have in the first place, that's an infinite rate of return. You'll always beat inflation wow. uh, under those guises. Yeah. So what can you do to fire your banker and become your own source of financing? I'll tell you one more story, then we can get down to brass tacks. I have a gentleman who 
had a million dollar line of credit. He's a client and a great guy. He had a million dollar line of credit with the local bank. He'd been very faithful and dutifully paying his line of credit. He was always on time. He used it to operate his very, very nice business, uh, seven, eight figure business. And then during the recession of 2008, he got the phone call. You know, the one I'm talking about where the banker says, hey, I'm terming out your loan. We're freezing your line of credit. We want you to pay us a million dollars over the next five years. You have no choice in the matter. Good luck. Uh-huh. He was furious. He said, I never want to step through the doors of a bank ever again to kiss that ring, as, as I said. So he started to, of course, pay them down. But he also set up his own bank for himself. He said, I'm going to be my own source of financing. Why should I leave it to the banks to do that you know, multi-thousand-year-old human practice of banking? Why couldn't I take that control back and control the environment in which my money lives? Why not be the banker? Why not sit behind the banker's desk? Wow. And so that's exactly what he did. And that's what I help clients do in setting up their own personal source of financing to help them become their own banker and to fire their real estate banker, their you know business banker, their student loan companies, and uh, take back that aspect of financial control. It's a tremendously rewarding experience. Uh, and it starts first with the mindset to think like a banker, but then there's even some practical specific financial tools and vehicles uh, we help clients set up to help them accomplish that. All right. So now we got to get to brass tacks. Are we talking about literally starting a bank or is that a metaphor for something? Well, we won't be setting up an FDIC insured bank and thank goodness. That's what, I, was, that's what yeah. I was wondering. That's what I was wondering. Cause that, that feels like a lot of paperwork and you might start mm-hmm. to lose me. Another 10 years of waiting and a hundred <laughs> yeah. million dollars of uh, reserves. Yeah. And we yeah. Have a bank charter. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We're, 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 yeah. Our audience are not the people who are going to be waiting around for 10 years. <laughs> I can tell you that. Well, me neither. Uh, so thank goodness. No, we don't have to worry uh, about uh, following in their footsteps, but think about it. Banks as they currently exist are a relatively modern phenomenon, but banking, as I mentioned, has been around for thousands of years. So how could we set up a banking structure that doesn't necessarily have to rely on the typical setup of what a bank does. So what does a bank actually do? It creates a big vault of cash that it then loans out to customers for a profit. That's their business. That's the product they sell. We might sell widgets or websites or whatever, but they sell debt and they sell a lot of it. So if you could set up a line of credit, meaning a big pool of contingency cash, on your balance sheet, not somebody else's, but on your balance sheet, then you could access that money as collateral and borrow against yourself and then pay yourself back at whatever rate or pace you wish. That's okay. the general concept of how banks work. Now, you don't have to have a $100 million you know, business to do that. All you need is to start packing away cash, put it somewhere where you know you can get to it. And there's only a few places you can put money where you still have access to it. Think about a storage it. Storage locker. Storage locker. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking about my lunchbox. Yeah. So um, you could put it in a storage locker or a barrel. Uh, you could put it into a, uh, you know, a, a regular bank account, savings account, CD, money market account, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but if you put it into a 401k or real estate or uh, stocks, you got to hope and pray that you can get that money out when the time comes, uh, which oftentimes, you know, well, let's think about it. If you need money, what's going on? It's probably an emergency. What's the price of your stock looking like during an emergency? That's crashing, right? Um, And are you going to be able to get access to that money from a banker if you're in an emergency? Probably not. So there's not many other places you can park cash where it will stay liquid. And again, as a CFP, I have to stop and say, this tool that I stumbled across really shocked me. And I almost dismissed it when I first found out about it. Uh, and you know, cause as most CFPs go, we're, we're trained. I was trained to think about the average way of doing things, stocks, wall street, real estate, maybe, maybe, uh, build up a nest egg and then hopefully you can retire someday. That's the kind of the oh so average way to do this money thing. But when I just discovered that a modernized form of whole life insurance could function like a bank without having to set up all the trappings of a real bank, and I could use it like a bank for myself, I was shocked. So I'll explain what I mean here. 
But yeah, um, whole life insurance is an asset that's been around for several hundred years in this country. It's older than the Constitution, as far as I can tell from my research. And it's different than term life insurance. Term life insurance is the kind you just sort of rent for a while. And there's nothing wrong with term insurance, but it, it almost never pays a, a death claim that you're building up no wealth in it. You're just renting it. It's like renting an apartment. You're just yeah. renting the term insurance for a while. And there's no equity that's built up. And then they'll raise the rent on you as you get older, just like an yeah. apartment. Otherwise, with whole life insurance, if it's designed not for commissions, I'm not talking about the old fashioned stuff grandpa had, but for massive amounts of capital that could be poured into this thing, it builds up something known as cash value. And that's the money you can spend. It's almost like equity in your house, except a lot more liquid and a lot more safe. Uh -huh. You see whole life insurance grows guaranteed every single year, even this year. As we're going through a market correction of 25 to 30%, all of my policies that I personally own are hitting all-time record highs. That's awesome. I know a lot of people, Adam, that would give their right arm just to not lose any more money this year in the market. Yeah. All right. Uh, second, it's accessible cash. I can get this money out of my policy for any reason at any time. It takes me about a week to get the money direct deposited into any bank account I want. Right. And right. spend that money any way I want to. Uh, third, it's uh, tax-free when I live and it's tax-free when I die. So if I want to get the money out for retirement, I can spend it tax-free. And if I die, it is a life insurance policy. So I'm going to leave that money income tax-free to my family. That's okay. That's awesome. And then the last thing I'll say, and then I'll hush, um, I can use it like a bank. So I can use that cash value borrowing against it and use it for anything I want, buying a car, fixing an emergency, investing in my business or real estate. And if I borrow against this policy, it does not vaporize the compound growth. So let me give you an example and then I'll be done. Let's say I've got $100,000 in cash value in one of these policies, 100 grand, uh -huh. 100 big ones. And let's say I borrow out 70,000 bucks to invest in my business. Well, my policy that year will continue to grow with that same guaranteed growth plus dividends uh -huh. on the entire 100,000 bucks as if I had not touched the money. And I've got the 70 grand over here working in my business or buying my cars or whatever I'm doing with the money. And that is a game changer because it means no more breaking compound growth when I spend money. So that's in a nutshell, what is uh, this tool and how you can set up your own source of financing. Right. So we're, we're specifically referring to whole life insurance, not term life insurance. I want to disambiguate that first. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so... Uh, I'm going to ask the most basic newbie duh, question because this may be new to a lot of people listening to this. So we are we're going to kind of start at that level. Why isn't everybody doing this? You ever bought a red car or some kind of car? When you buy it, you look around, you're like, wow, there's tons of these things around here. Why didn't I notice these before? That's yeah. kind of been my personal experience uh, with this tool. Again, it's not a good fit for everybody. We can get into why if you want, Adam, but as I've been able to kind of open my eyes to this tool, it's it's incredible how many people are doing this. Uh, banks are some of the biggest purchasers of whole life insurance. They actually, Bank of America actually owns more cash value life insurance than all of their real estate is valued combined. JP wow. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, they all have hundreds of billions of dollars wrapped up in life insurance contracts. Presidential candidates, congressmen and women, Business owners, uh, case in point, I just went to Disneyland uh, with my daughter and yeah, Disneyland was started from Walt Disney's life insurance. He took a policy loan when no banker yeah. would lend him a dime. He borrowed from his life insurance to start the construction for Disneyland. Well, these things are just all over our uh, American history. And I'm surprised that more people don't know about it too, man. I think, hey, I'm on your show to try to get the word out. Well, let's not tell everybody, but let's tell <laughs> the people who really need to benefit from this. Uh, I imagine there's got to be some barrier to entry. I mean, I can't, uh, I imagine it's not just a simple matter of me uh, calling up a whole life insurance company saying, hey, I'd like to order some whole life insurance today. Yeah, a yeah. million dollars? Cool. Where do I sign? I'm sure it's a yeah. little bit more complicated than that. So what do we need? What ducks do we need to have lined up before we go for this? Well, you're exactly right. There's a lot of, um, I'd say, uh, hoops to jump through. One, you got to be willing and able to save. And that cuts a lot of people out right there. 
Yeah. If you can't live within your means, if you're spending, if you're saving for Saturday night, you're not going to do very well with anything in your financial life. I don't care if it's a mutual fund or one of these whole life policies. Uh, so you got to be able to live within your means. Yeah. Now, the second is most whole life insurance is not correctly designed. You know, if uh, it's, it's, it's sort of like, how do I compare this? Ever get into an elevator? All you do is you walk into the elevator, you push a button and up you go. At least that's what you think you're doing. What you're that's actually what doing. Think, yeah. Yeah. What you're actually doing is you're, com- you're participating in an incredible engineering experiment and you're putting your very life and in, in trust uh, into a complete stranger's hands the engineer and the service technician of that elevator. If they Uh didn't design that elevator correctly, you push that button and whoops, look out below. Now that's how it's seemed to become, as I look at now thousands of uh, insurance policies and uh, clients' financial lives, when I look at the insurance agents uh, work, because I can see their policies that they set up for clients. And a lot of folks will come to me and say, oh, yeah, Mark, I got one of these. I, I refer to these, uh-huh. by the way, Adam, as bank on yourself designed whole life policies to kind of contrast it to normal whole life insurance because they're categorically different. They're designed for cash accumulation, right? They're designed not for yep. the death benefit or commissions, but for cash. And so we refer to these as bank on yourself just to distinguish bank on yourself designed policies. Uh, but when folks hear me talk about this, they'll say, oh, I got one of those. Yeah, I got one of those. And then they send it to me and they, they let me look at it. And it's it's riddled with commissions and fees. Uh-huh. It may be tied to a certain market or, or index or even stock subaccounts. It's going to lapse on them. It's going to become a tax nightmare. They don't realize it until we have a, a detailed look at it. Uh, so to answer your question, barrier to entry, who is your advisor? If they are not a bank on yourself professional, someone who's been trained and certified to do this exact thing, it's... Uh, yeah, it's like working with trying to get into an elevator that was uh, designed by your Uncle Joe. You just don't want to do that. Nah, right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I I love this. So basically, we have identified a couple ways to really become, in a way, your own bank. And uh, I have heard of the whole whole life insurance thing before, and I'm glad that you were able to bifurcate that for us and also update my understanding of it. And this is actually a little bit deeper than I've gotten into it up until now, but now I understand what the barrier to entry is. It's more, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's more about where you are right now with your financial situation is um, it's, you know, are you in a position where you're able to do an insa- a savings and investment plan? If the answer is yes, then this may be, let me, let me, let me just sort of morph this into a question. Is this more or less effective than playing on a stock market? Hmm. Well, good question. Over what time frame would be my short answer? Okay. Because overnight, we could have a 20% swing in the stock market and we'd all be feeling rich. Okay. And we could all be feeling poor like a lot of people I know. I mean, I've uh, I've, yeah. ta- I've 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 uh, I've taken a big swipe and uh yep. and uh you know and uh, you know some people who are close to me who have for years been extremely financial financially secure or for the first time in decades actually worried. Yeah. Well, that's uh that's a really really astute point uh, and it's surprising how long the bull market lasted. Uh and I didn't know how long it would last either. And if one is putting their money into a whole life insurance policy, even one designed the bank on yourself way, the way I described earlier, it's going to grow incredibly well, but it's still going to have a few years there where we're catching up. We're paying for the costs of insurance. You know, it might break, it might start to grow more than your contribution somewhere around year four or so. So it's going to be a modest, steady as she goes kind of return yeah. somewhere around the four, five, 6% range. Now, Adam, I'll add to that, that it's a tax-free return. Yeah. So what does that mean? That just means if you're getting 5% tax-free, what would your 401k have to do since it's taxable? It might need to, your 401k might need to do 8, 9% just to keep up with a tax-free yield of five. So uh, in that in that regard, I like the whole life policy, not because it's an investment. It's not, it's not one at all. It's a cash bucket that I can use for my business or my family's life. It's a big bucket of contingency capital. It's on the ass, it's on the balance sheet of my personal life or my business. I can use it 
for any purpose and help me increase my yield on other investments, such as real estate. So if I've got a real estate deal, for example, I want to go buy, I can borrow from my life insurance policy, pay cash at closing for the real estate deal. Uh -huh. My policy will continue to compound and grow like I never took the loan. And I'll get the, the, the growth, the arbitrage on the real estate deal at the same time. So if I got, let's say I got a nice deal in real estate and I got 10% on that real estate deal. Well, I got another four or 5% to my policy. I just increased my return without any additional market risk since the whole life policy is guaranteed to grow. I love that. I think that's what, I think that's a way that any of us could invest uh, in things that we understand and control, such as our business. Yeah, I, I could not agree more with what you're saying there. So um, you've also said, you mentioned this to me before we got started with our conversation here, that there's something better than being debt-free. Is that what we're talking about here? Or is there more we need to hear about that? Well, it's a strategy and a trademark process um, that our firm has put together. It's known as the debt snowbank method. Okay. The snowbank method, as opposed to the debt snowball method. Some people know how that works. The debt snowball method is the typical conventional way to be debt-free. It's what I tried to follow at first with my 120 grand of student loan debt. Uh, so the snowball method, the ordinary way to do it, um, asks you to list out all your debts and to throw as much debt as you can at one account at a time to just knock out one debt after the other. And I tried to do that for a long time, but I kept finding myself falling back down the debt staircase. You know, I'd pay off a little bit of debt, but then I'd have to ring it back up again uh, when I, you know, had the flat tire or, you know, lost a job or whatever it was my, my emergency was at the time, medical emergency, whatever. So I was getting frustrated because I was seeing my, my years slip away from me and not really making a whole lot of progress in my debt-free journey. Uh, what I did instead was I set up, as I discovered this bank on yourself concept, I set up a several of these whole life policies on me and my wife. And we began to just, we, we did the, the steps that we now refer to as the debt snowbank method. Step one, you keep current on all your debts. You don't go behind, certainly. You want to keep current on all your debts, paying yep. the minimums. Step two, throw anything additional and above and beyond the minimum debt payments, throw anything else you can into these maximized for cash whole life policies, what we refer to as bank on yourself type whole life policies. So you're just flooding those policies with as much cash as possible. All right. So as yeah. you can kind of imagine, you're seeing your debt coming down slowly as you make those payments every month. And you're seeing your policies grow massive amounts of cash as fast as possible as you're packing money into those. So that's step two is you're overfunding these policies. Step three, as your policy has enough capital in it, you borrow against the policy and wipe out one account after the next. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Now your policy, step four, continues to grow and compound even on the amounts that you borrowed out to wipe out your debts. This means I'm better than debt-free. I don't just get back to the starting line of my financial life. I actually have assets earning dividends and wealth for me. My policies are still building wealth for me, even as I'm paying off my debts. Most people ask me, Mark, well, Mark, should I save first or should I pay off my debt? And I say, yes. That's the answer. Yes. Start by packing money into a policy, an asset you control, and then use that to help you pay off your debt, collateralizing it with that policy loan. Now, last thing, and then I'll hush and pass it back to you there, Adam. You get to decide your repayment schedule. Okay. So on these policy loans, there's no required repayment plan, Ooh. which is huge for the business owner. Yeah. Um, and it's huge. It was huge for me too, as I was trying to pay off my student loans. So uh -huh. you get to borrow from the policy and then you could take a few months off if you need to, or a few years off. If you can't repay that loan right away, you are your own source of financing. You're the banker. So you set the terms. Oh, nice. So, so if I want to give that meth lab a few years to That's turn right. a profit <laughs> before I start repaying on the uh, seed capital loan, I can certainly do that. That's good. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Just, uh, just you know, um, make sure you keep away from any open flames. We don't want that thing blown up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah I, just I'll kidding, regulators, if anyone's listening there. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> All right. So so we have just a few minutes here, uh, and there's so much more that 
we could cover. And I'm going to give our listeners just a moment, an invitation you have for them. And it's a real amazing invitation, by the way, of how might this bank on yourself method that you shared with us help in other areas of your life? Uh, like we're, I mean, like college for the kids, real estate investing, car purchases. I know we talked about the real estate a little bit, but what about some of these other things that are very much on people's minds, perhaps even more these days? I realize that uh, inflation is taking a heavy toll on a lot of people and the price of a car has gone up dramatically. Would you like me to give you an actual case study example here? Yeah, I would uh, love with it. Real numbers. I realize we're on the podcast, so I'll try to keep this as simple as possible for those uh -huh. just driving down the road. So guys, uh, don't, don't wreck the car. Just listen. You can go back and rewind if you want to. Um, all right. So let's say you want to buy a very nice car. Let's say it's a $50,000 vehicle. You have a yep. couple of choices. You could finance the vehicle and you're back in the banker's pocket paying him or her some interest and you're on their hook. You got to kiss their ring. You got to get approved for that loan. You got to be on their monthly payment schedule. If you miss a few payments, they'll come repo the car with Uncle Guido, you know, uh, so they'll wreck your credit report. Not exactly a great afternoon. The other alternative is to lease the, pro lease the problem, <laughs> which is even worse because you know, all you're doing is renting that car, basically, and you have nothing to show for all your payments after five years. The third option is to save, save, save and pay up and pay cash for the car. And a lot of folks think that's the best way to go. But I disagree. You see, if you save money in a savings account or money market or a brokerage account, packing away all this money and you're earning a little interest while you're packing it away, and that feels pretty good. But how do you get money out of your bank account? Well, you got to withdraw it. And Adam, here's an easy question. Yeah. How much interest do you earn on money you no longer have? None. None. That's right. That's right. So once you spend that money, it's gone forever. And here's the other problem. The only thing that's not, it's not the only thing that's gone. Also gone is whatever that money that you used to have would have continued to earn for you had you not bought your car. If you'd left that money invested instead. Right. So your $50,000 car, the real price of it over your lifetime will definitely be in the six figures due to opportunity cost. So here's the big aha moment that I had when I was a young adult trying to pay off my debt. I realized that I finance everything I buy. Everything. Whether you finance it through a, car, a bank loan or if I save up and pay cash, I am, I am still in the banking business. Either I'll pay interest to a bank down the street or I'll save up and pay cash and I'll pass by all the interest I could have earned on that money had I left it invested instead. So the right. better way to do it is to bank on yourself. Yeah. Pack money into one of these policies. Okay. So back to our car, sticker price says 50,000 bucks on it. I'm going to borrow against that policy when I get enough money in there. I'll borrow against it. Nobody can turn me down for that loan. It takes me about three minutes to request the money. It's direct deposited into my bank account within about a week or so. I walk into the car dealer and I pay cash for the car. I've got the title. It's my car. I get to decide my repayment schedule. Let's say I chose four years. All right. So I did pay some interest to borrow this money. It's a real loan. But again, it's with an insurance policy that I control and that I own. But I paid some interest back to the insurance company. And over a four-year period, just to make the math real easy, um, on 50 grand, it'd be about 3,800 bucks. That's how much interest I'd pay. That's, that's not works bad. Out, works out to about 1.9%. Yeah, yeah, that's not too, that's, not too a, that's a good rate. Not bad at all. Yeah. <laughs> now, hold on. What was going on? Did I just pay 53 grand for a car that was only $50,000? A lot of folks say, well, Mark, you just paid interest on your own money. You should have just paid cash. And I say, well, wait a minute. How much did that cash value? Remember, the cash value in my policy is still growing like I never touched the money. Even yeah. on the capital I borrowed, how was it doing? Remember, I borrowed this money and it took me four years to pay it off. Over a four-year period, to borrow 50 grand cost me 3,800 bucks, as I mentioned. But the policy's growth over that same four-year period, if it's doing an, you know, an average of about 5%, which is pretty typical, got me about 12,000 bucks of gains. Uh -huh. So hold on. I just earned $12,000 over four years. That's way better than a savings account. And I spent $3,800 to borrow my money to buy my car. This means I have about $8,200 of what they call arbitrage. 
I made more than I spent. Yeah. We as business owners get that. We get it. If I'm going to spend 3,800 bucks for a tool and I get $12,000 back for that tool's, you know, efforts, that's a good deal. How many of those can I get? Right. So that's how it works. That's why I never pay cash for cars anymore. I use my policy instead. That's the long way around, but that's an example of how this might work for a car. Imagine how it might work for your kid's college or a house or your business or heck, you know, a trip around the world. We just had a lady who bought a, um, a, a her whole family a cruise around the world using her policy. Just turned 70 years old. She wanted to celebrate with her whole family. She just took everybody around the world on a policy loan that she controlled. That's so cool. Anyway, that's that's what gets me goosebumps. Oh, that is that is really exciting. Uh, you know, this may be unrelated. Uh, I mean, this is maybe a real like some may even say weird way to end our conversation, but this is uh, something that I share with people all the time. Uh, you know, we go to seminars, conferences, uh, join masterminds, and things like that. And we have the option. Uh, I'm going to use a an example that a lot of our listeners can be familiar with. Uh, product launch formula, Jeff Walker's system. Now, I'm not sure what he's charging for it these days. I haven't looked, but I remember when I bought it the second time, I paid uh, nine, I pay I paid about two thousand dollars for it. Now, I didn't. Uh, now, I ended up taking the six payment plan, which all said and done, I think I paid him almost twenty four hundred dollars after we did those because um, you know, the six payments. You know, you pay extra for that. Yeah. And here's what somebody told me because I did that in 2016. And subsequent to that, somebody explained something to me that I wish I would have thought of at the time is if you're going to invest in seminars and conferences and masterminds and things like that, and you want to take the payment plan, there's a better way to do it. There's there's actually a better way to do it that can actually save you some money and possibly even earn you money. Uh, They say, as far as having the wealth mindset, always make the single payment. Well, Mm -hmm. some of us don't have that cash immediately on hand, or we do have that cash on hand, but we don't want to tie up that much of it all at once. Yep. So here's what you do. Uh, Product launch formula, 1997 for the single pay. Okay, go to Jeff's website, type in your credit card, single pay 1997. His company is paid. You're done with him. He gives you your username and password. Your business with him is finished. So now you've made that payment on a business credit card, a true business credit card, not one of those fake ones that's actually linked to your social security number, which is a little trick that I had pulled on me and found out about later on. Mm. Uh, But uh, yeah, uh, and and a lot of people actually don't even realize it's happening to them. So what you do is you take one of those cards uh, that you you have zero balance on because you got to use them at least once a year so they don't get canceled. And uh, you say, okay, well, I'm going to use this one. I'm going to pay the $19.97 for product launch formula. Log into your online portal. Take $19.97, divide it by six. Make an immediate payment of one-sixth of that. And then set up automatic payments for one payment of that amount every month for five months. Mm -hmm. So now you paid single pay to get the product. You're doing an installment on your own business credit card, and you're working your way toward another payoff on your record. And yeah, you're going to pay a little bit in interest, but you're not going to pay an extra $500 for it. Mm-hmm. And depending on the card and the nature of the purchase, you may get cashback rewards, right? which could be actual money or could be uh, certificates, mileage for flights. And in the end, you could actually end up paying less than $19.97 when you figure the net after you get your rewards or your bonuses or what have you, like Look, uh, like like yeah, like, like my mastermind I belong to is four hundred ninety seven dollars a month. I I use one of my business credit cards just to, just to pay for that mastermind, and then I have the card automatically paid for every month. But meanwhile, I'm uh, with the cashback rewards I'm getting on it. That basically amounts to about uh, about half of one month of my mastermind every year being paid for. Mm-hmm. Because I pay for the mastermind, yeah. So I'm at, so I'm actually giving myself a discount. Besides, yeah. No, what you're doing is you're using banking for your uh, convenience rather than letting yep. the banks use you for their convenience. 
Yeah, yeah. So basically, I think the reason that came up because it sounds like sort of like a micro version of what we've been discussing about the 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 whole life insurance and mm-hmm. uh, borrowing against your own cash and the arbitrage and what have you. So yep. I wanted to bring it down to something really simple. So if any of our listeners haven't gotten it, regardless of how clear you've already been, they can say, oh, it's something like that writ large. Okay, I get it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we love are that. unfortunately at that point. I would love to chat with you for like 19 more hours, but I got to get to your invitation right now. And folks, as I said, this one's a doozy. You can right now speak with Mark Willis one-on-one. Here's how you do it. Go to go to kickstartwithmark.com. That's kickstartwithmark.com. Book yourself a free 15-minute phone introductory strategy session with Mark. And you can discuss this entire theory. You can discuss what all of this means. And you'll find out why Mark Willis is indeed not your average financial planner. Uh, he also has a website, of course, at uh, lakegrowth.com. And he has a great podcast. I encourage you to tune into that, Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Also very active on social media. Whenever you reach out to him, just mention you heard him on the Business Creators Radio Show. And with that, Mark Willis, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you, Adam. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.